Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Sorry, I gotta, I gotta hang on for a helicopter. The helicopters over Shaw have gotten excessive, and I want like a separate podcast just about why there are so many damn hel- helicopters going overhead all the time now. I, I also have this question, but okay. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We're here with uh, Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, the The economy is uh, is reopening this week in America with no problems having been solved, as far as I can tell. And The Weeds, along with that, we continue to cower in our separate homes rather than, than gathering, uh, working remotely and responsibly. But we are reopening The Weeds topic list. Uh, that yes. we had compiled from before the pandemic became uh, some ideas. In a truly we... remarkable act of foresight, we had a big brainstorming session to set out the entire next month at the beginning of March. Yes. So <laughs> so we, we laid out an editorial roadmap that uh, wound up in a ditch, uh, but we are now returning to select <laughs> select elements yes. of the roadmap. Um, so, you know, one thing we wanted to talk about that I think continues to be 100% relevant, even as the world has been turned upside down, is that there's this kind of argument simmering throughout the political system for years, really, about whether you need to try to win by persuading swing voters and and sort of bring them over to your side. And, you know, that can mean different things, but sort of classically, it's like, well, you've got to be moderate. You need to cater to the sentiments of people who voted for Donald Trump last time and make them like Democrats. Or are we in a base mobilization paradigm, which is something that, you know, you hear a lot from sort of ideologically uh, lefty people, but also uh, Rachel Beitkofer has sort of been a a prominent exponent of in in different ways. And when you hear talk that like Biden wants to put an African-American woman on the ticket because that's such a core element of the Democratic base. I mean, there are a number of different like dimensionalities to, to that kind of consideration, but definitely one of them is a sentiment that in that case, it's like you are trying to engage the sentiments of like the demographic core of the party and and fire people up and have that power to victory. And again, there's different ways you can think about what the base is or who the swing voters are, um, which, which is important. But I also do think there is a a sentiment. Um, M- Michelle Obama uh, yesterday said, um, or maybe it was two days ago. She 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 had this thing where she said, you know, she's angry about what's happening in the country, but she's not angry at Trump voters. She's angry. She said at African Americans who didn't come out to vote in 2016, and she's angry uh, about Trump winning, and she's also angry that. African-American turnout was so poor in the 2010 and 2014 midterms. And she, you know, she like personalized it, but it's like they, they they weren't there for Barack, she said. Like they didn't understand the linkage between those midterms and the success of her husband's presidency or between the 2016 election and our understanding of his his legacy. Michelle Obama's version of this was like, different from the like, if we do Medicare for all, we're going to mobilize millions of non-voting. There's like a Bernie version of the base mobilization thesis, and there's a Michelle Obama version of it. Um, But they are both in contrast to the old conventional wisdom, which is that like, you really have to look at the swing voters. Right. And it's interesting because um, this conversation has come up with regard to the announcement that Representative Justin Amash is pursuing an exploratory committee to run for the Libertarian nomination. And you heard from a host of people, mostly never Trump conservatives, saying that Amash will steal these votes and this is going to swing the election towards Trump. When the polling shows that the people who vote for third parties generally are not gettable voters, they're not these independent voters. I think that we need to have a real conversation about who 
who independent voters actually are and how available swing voters are, because I think that that's something we saw in 2016, which is that you had the quote unquote missing white voter um, that voted for Trump, but that hadn't voted in 2008 or 2012, or perhaps had voted down ticket, but hadn't voted at the presidential level. That idea that there you already have this base of voters, you don't need to convince people is, I think, very appealing, especially for folks who are supportive of someone like Bernie Sanders, who see that going outside of their available message is like watering it down when you could talk to the many people who you assume already agree with you. I mean, I think we all believe firmly that everyone actually kind of agrees with this already about most things. But I feel like this is kind of the political version of that. So There are a bunch of different dimensions to this, and I think it's worth being explicit about them. First, I think, is the question of to what extent is there a fixed pool of voters, people who already, you know, who already know they're going to vote and do not necessarily know for whom to vote. And so, you know, you need to be the person to capture more of those question mark voters than the other guy versus on the other end of that spectrum. Is it a question of Everyone knows who they'd prefer, but you have to make sure that more of the people who prefer your candidate get to the polls than people who prefer any other candidate. That's kind of a a very stark way to put this just in terms of like persuasion versus mobilization. Now, this is getting caught up with a conversation about candidate effects, right? Like to what extent when people show up to the polls or, you know, choose whether to vote or for whom to vote, are they voting for a particular individual versus the set of policies that that individual represents? That's kind of the, you know, that's what Michelle Obama is expressing a certain amount of frustration with Black voters over. There's, you know, there definitely is some evidence that just the existence of Barack Obama on the ticket or not was a, re- you know, was a relevant variable in African-American turnout in like 2012 versus 2014 versus 2016. Um, and then there is this question of, are the people who we think of as independent voters really that independent? And to what extent does that change over time? Right? Like there, you know, that's where Jane's kind of third party thing comes in. That's where the question of is the white working class still gettable for Democrats comes in. And this is, I think, where honestly, the proponents of mobilization have over the last four years done a decent job of laying out, demographically speaking, who they think the gettable non-voters are. They have not done as consistent a job of of explaining in a way that maps onto electoral reality how you get those people to vote. There's a certain, like, it makes sense that people who are invested in movement building would be drawn to the mobilization theory and would also be drawn to a theory of politics that says people turn out to vote because they want policy change. But in practice, it's not clear, especially as you get to the national level, that, like, non-voters or inconsistent voters are mobilated, or are mobilated, cool, mobilized and motivated by the prospect (laughs) of policy change. The persuasion folks, on the other hand, it seems to me, have done a decent job of laying out you know, they've they've been fairly consistent on you need like candidates with good messages and policies that aren't so extreme as to turn a bunch of people off. They have not done, as far as I can tell, as clear a job of laying out exactly who they think the gettable voters are and establishing that those people are actually gettable, as opposed to just assuming that everybody who tells a pollster that they're independent is up for grabs in any given election. I think it's helpful to sort of bring some some kind of precise details, because as in a lot of debates that have been running for a long time, there's a tendency for people on all sides of this to have like little talking points that they use, which are accurate. And then if you selectively deploy them, you can create a very misleading picture. As far as we can tell, if African-American turnout in 2016 had been as high as it was in 2008 and 2012, instead of narrowly losing Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, Hillary Clinton would have narrowly won those three states. So in a in a hyper-literal sense, it is true that had Black turnout maintain, maintained that level, Hillary would have won. And so you can say in a certain but far causation way, Hillary lost because of the fall in African-American turnout. 
I think a a more true way of looking at it is that African-American turnout in 2016 was equal to where it was in 2004 or 2000, that if you adjust for educational attainment, African-American turnout was higher than white turnout. And that what you had is in two races when Obama was on the ticket, black turnout spiked to like a super unusual level that has never been seen before or against, not just for African-Americans, but for any demographic subset of the population. And that, of course, Hillary Clinton could not like inspire the same level of black turnout as the historic first African-American president, and that that's completely unrealistic. And if you look at it quantitatively, right, there are many more people who are in the bucket of non-college whites who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump than African-Americans who voted for Obama and then didn't vote in 2016. Those are both groups of people. And had you been able to fully reverse either of those things, Hillary would have won. But the switching was just a numerically larger phenomenon. Um, And also, like, it's easier to see how a bunch of people who, whatever their score on a racial resentment index, they were sufficiently not racist to vote twice for Barack Obama. So, like, Democrats should be able to get people who voted for Barack Obama to vote for other white candidates seems like a plausible bar, whereas white Democrats should be able to inspire the level of turnout of a historical figure doing an unrepeatable phenomenon. Like, that seems a little... A little like more power to you if you could do it, but like unrealistic in an obvious way that like get people who voted for Obama to also vote for Joe Biden is like that's a little banal, right? Like, like why why, why wouldn't you do that? And then the other thing that you, that you get in this is a kind of demographic electoral college. So like the the way the electoral college works is that if you win Pennsylvania narrowly, you win Pennsylvania. But the margin otherwise doesn't matter. And people sometimes get to talking in that way about demographic groups. So you'll be like, Democrats are never going to win the white working class, Uh, which I think is totally true. But it's not an electoral college. So like getting 25 percent versus getting 35 percent of non-college white voters actually makes a huge difference difference, right? And and that's where I think we as a punditocracy got into a lot of trouble after the 2012 election, because like Obama got creamed with non-college whites in 2012, uh, but he won anyway. So we said, like, how could a person win the election despite getting creamed so badly with non-college whites? And then we spun up all these takes about the growing Latino vote, about African-American voters, about college-educated professionals, blah, blah, blah. Then four years later, Democrats got creamed just like even worse with non-college whites. And suddenly they lost the election. And suddenly the Electoral College map flipped against them. And like the Senate looks permanently out of reach. And just like... to me, I think like that—that's the reality that's most important to keep in mind with these things. That it's like you should try to get more votes from demographic subset X. Doesn't mean you get all their votes. And the like stupidly literal reason that non-college whites matter a lot as a demographic is that they are simply much more numerous than any other race education like subdivide. They're not like magic. There's just three times as many of them. I, I mean, I think all of this is far as good as far as it goes, but I I don't think it gets us to the actual... The reason that this is relevant in 2020 is that we have an election in which an incumbent who won, with, who won the primary with a pretty pure mobilization strategy, uh, although they didn't necessarily understand that at the time, and, you know, a peer, like in, in some respects, un- stipulating that the margin of victory was so narrow in the key states in 2016 that like to say victory was due to any particular thing is wrong. But among the things that led Donald Trump to victory, despite predictions not in, not assuming as much was like turnout in pla- in states like Florida, where it was where it was coming from the same kinds of people who had been inconsistent voters but had supported him in the primary. And so you can kind of assume, especially given the extent of governing for the base and the rabid you know affection of the base, that they're running a mobilization playbook in 2020. 
on the Democratic side, you have a candidate winning who did not inspire much passionate loyalty among party activists is, I think, a good way to put it, whose support was, while broad, was often assumed to be soft or shallow, which doesn't necessarily mean that it was soft or shallow, but does say something about what the people doing the commentating expected out of Joe Biden fans. And it does seem like Democrats, you know, do have a recent, a fairly recent history with losing an election to a Republican presidential incumbent with having a candidate who was just not interesting enough to inspire a lot of, you know, to inspire mass mobilization. Like the the 2004 election was in part a successful effort by the George W. Bush administration to turn it into a, a, a choice between Bush and John Kerry rather than turning it into just a referendum on Bush. So this kind of the big question in the, all right, here's who you should be going after demographically theory is, do you do that by running Joe Biden? And if so, is it because of a unifying message? How much policy space, how much policy leeway is there for a candidate to run to the left without turning off, you know, like to 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 run to the left in order to try to win some of the constituencies of the Democratic Party who didn't turn out for him in the primary without turning off the very voters who his theory of the case suggests he's in it to win? That Those are all questions that I don't think are being addressed by the current round of the persuasion versus mobilization debate. And that's exactly what Democrats need to be asking. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was, I've been thinking a lot about kind of our, I think that this goes to perhaps a separate conversation, but a lot of this plays into like what exactly we think the presidency is supposed to do and the increased power that we have given to the executive branch which I think that Democrats occasionally kind of forgot about in 2010 and 2014, when you think of the presidency as kind of the be all and the end all. And I actually think in some ways that that's very much what you saw, you see from Trump, who references his 2016 win all the time, even though like, you know, we've had now multiple elections since that point. And so I think that one of the challenges here is that. Wait, can you can you explain what what, what you're saying there more about about the presidency? I think that there is occasionally with some voters an assumption that, you know, you vote for the person you want to be president and then everything changes in the way that you see that it should change, that Barack Obama winning in 2008 should have ended institutional racism and generally fixed everything. And that that was essentially it's almost kind of as if we do this kind of end of history thesis for every election, that this marks this giant sea change in how we will perceive all events. And you saw that in 2016 from some of the people who were most closely aligned with Trump, the idea that this was representative of the sweeping change that would make Democrats a permanent minority. And we heard that from Democrats in 2012 talking about how Republicans would be a permanent minority. Nothing is permanent. This is all going on forever. But I do think that there is an idea of the presidency specifically. And you heard this. There was a I've referenced it before, but there was a great piece uh, written just after the 2016 election about African-American voters in Milwaukee who very much saw kind of Clinton. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Trump as being basically the same thing and kind of had an idea like we voted the last time, but nothing happened for us. And this is you know the idea that I think there are a lot of people, especially on Twitter, especially who kind of do this work, who think that the political motivations of the people who vote are similar to the political motivations of the people who talk about politics all the time, that like the people who are voting for a specific campaign are doing so on the basis of the enti- you know, having carefully looked at their entire platform or who are deeply interested in this the entire political milieu. And I don't think that that's how most people think. And so I do think that there is something to be said for the pers- you know, for the persuasion model. And I think that while mobilization, I think, is a more popular concept among people who think about politics all the time, I think the persuasion model might actually work better for what people actual how people actually vote. This kind of jumps off what what you were saying about the the the, the presidency, right? But one thing that I think you saw very strongly with both the Obama presidency and the Trump presidency, and 
maybe I think would would be would be lessened, I think, in a in a Biden era. But that like Barack Obama being in the White House was seen by a large minority of Americans as like a symbolic affirmation of their sense of what America is all about and was seen by another minority of people as like a huge rejection and denigration of that. And then with Trump, it completely flips, right? So you have all kinds of people. I mean, we've talked, Dara, I know this is like a like a thing of yours, but, you know, all kinds of like fairly privileged white people who pre-coronavirus, at least, were not like personally suffering that much from anything the Trump administration was doing, feeling very like psychically assaulted by Trump being being president. And it's obvious that a number of more racially traditionalist Americans saw Barack Obama's presidency in, in, in the same way, right? As like a, as a, as a, and I thought um, Cornell Belcher's book, uh, Black Man in the White House, is, is really good on this that for a, a swath of the public, Obama being president was a, a psychological and symbolic assault on their understanding of the country. And then Trump being president is that for another set of people and people who are motivated about politics in that kind of way, you can understand why they then like they don't care about the midterm election for governor. There are really important policy stakes in all elections, but this like, who are we as a country is an exclusively presidential thing and doesn't really speak to specific policy points. Like Obama, you know, did some stuff, but like he didn't have a particularly like aggressive racial justice agenda and notably a less aggressive one than like every white Democrat running in 2020. But like he was a black person, which is a really big deal. Right. And I think that this is the other reason. So what has been fascinating to me about watching this debate flare up again as Democrats coalesce around or settle on, depending on how you see it, Joe Biden is a nominee, is we already have, you know, as you alluded to earlier, Matt, a very visible veep stakes. Um, and part of it does appear to be a product of constituencies who weren't who aren't super enthused by the, you know, Democratic presidential presidential choice looking to get enthused or people who are trying to reach out to those voters looking to like keep them in the game. And the face of that has been Stacey Abrams, who has been fairly publicly lobbying for a vice presidential nod, or at least has been doing it in such a way that people who don't want her to get it have been leaking that her people are lobbying for it, which like maybe is just an old school, you know, instinct of mine that that seems like a, you know, like the sort of thing that is likely to not endear you to party elites. I would like to interrupt very quickly to say that, like, that's not to say that this doesn't happen before. It's just that normally we don't know about it. Right. Right. It's one of those where, like, if if it's coming out publicly, that doesn't mean it's a, that that means that someone heard about it and thought that's a bad enough idea that I'm going to leak it to try to stop. Yeah, it. No, no, but also right. she doesn't deny it in the press. Right. That, right. That's the critical difference. Right. So, like, I remember I was reporting on the Hillary Veep stakes and somebody oh, I gosh. was supposed to somebody I was supposed to look into was Tom Vilsack, who was the agriculture secretary at that time. And he's like on the record quote was something like, I'm focused on my work defending America's farmers. And then like his spokesperson sent me this like huge fucking PDF of like 90 billion reasons Tom Vilsack should be vice president of the United States. But if you just like asked him, he would say something like very coy and self-abnegating. What Abrams is doing that's different is that if someone asks her, like, would you like to be vice president? She's like, yeah, that'd be cool. Right. Which like is obvious, but it like breaks this like weird taboo right. that you're not supposed to say you would accept a major promotion in your fucking career as a politician. And like it works very well with the lane that Abrams has built for herself in the Democratic Party, where, you know, she gave a State of the Union response that was actually very broadly liked, which nobody ever does. But before that, she was known for pushing a mobilization theory of the electorate. She had, you know, done a she had put a lot of her effort toward expanding the electorate in in Georgia. She had, you know, was in theory, a face of the fact that you can run as a progressive in a red state and win as long as you're getting people who haven't traditionally voted and make get them invested and bring them out to vote, which is to say, 
Stacey Abrams, who is now, you know, in the running to become Joe Biden's vice presidential pick, has historically advocated for a view of how Democrats can win elections that is very highly contrary to the view that got Joe Biden the Democratic nomination. And I think that that contradiction can be resolved if you adopt the kind of pure representationalist view of having an African-American on the ticket is going to bring out Black voters and it like not necessarily checks that box, but that that is more powerful than anything Joe Biden as a white man could do to bring those voters out. But it does pose something of a problem for the people who believe strongly that the Democratic Party needs to be not only a multiracial party, but a multiracial progressive party. In the kind of bluntest way to put it, if representation is the most effective strategy for bringing out non-white voters, then if you believe that the interests of non-white voters aren't super well served by a center or center-left party, it doesn't matter because a center or center-left party can still find enough people who agree with its views of any race and put them on the ballot. And, you know, the, the people who believe that there is an interest in the Democratic Party being a multiracial progressive coalition or working class coalition end up getting shut out of the decision making process by their own voters in that model. OK, let's let's take a break, though. And then I I, I want to talk about Stacey Abrams, because I think she's a great case study in in how how this stuff gets weird. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, so I, I have written about this on, on Vox.com, but I, I really recommend a medium post called What Happened in the Georgia Gubernatorial Election uh, that was done by Catalyst Analytics. And they are just like one of the top like Democratic Party like data firms, right? And they look at the Georgia gubernatorial election in a lot of detail. And one thing they do is they compare 2016 to 2018, because a Abrams lost in 2018, but she came much closer to beating Brian Kemp than uh, Hillary Clinton had come to beating Donald Trump. And the interesting thing is they show that Abrams ran weaker with African-American voters than Hillary did. Uh, but she made up for it by running stronger with white voters. So while Abrams lost, it is true that she ran a strong race and the Democrats, uh, you know, could she, she seems like a pretty good politician and there are probably lessons to be learned from her campaign. And also she has some some appeal as a person. But it very specifically wasn't the appeal that she 
advertised. Uh, and you see it down the board because race and age are very intertwined in a lot of Southern states. She did worse than Hillary with young voters, uh, but significantly better with Hillary than Hillary did with old voters uh, who are a larger share of the electorate. So if you look at Stacey Abrams, not in terms of what Stacey Abrams says she's doing with the electorate, but in terms of what Joe Biden says he's doing with the electorate, she's actually a great match for that. Right. Which is that like Bi Biden, if you look at current polling matchups with Trump, Biden is doing worse than Hillary with young voters and is doing worse than Hillary with non-white voters, but is making it up by doing better with old voters and with white voters and old people and white people are more numerous in the electorate. And, and that is, in fact, exactly the Stacey Abrams template. So on one level, I feel like the the biggest way that Abrams could be an asset is that I think if you said explicitly, my strategy is to try to increase Democrats' appeal to old white people, uh, that there would be a lot of internal coalitional resistance to that idea. Uh, but if you put Stacey Abrams on the ticket, who was effective at increasing Democrats' appeal to old white people, um, and say, oh, we really want to energize young people of color, but then you actually try to get the votes of old white people. That might be the kind of easiest way to, you know, it makes the medicine go down easier if Stacey Abrams is the face of the appeal to old white people strategy. Yeah, it's very much um, I've been thinking a lot of the about how we signal things or position ourselves to other people. And so much of the like, we I got um, a email notification from the magazine The Nation, you know, announcing their articles of the day. And their, you know, the article uh, was something about like, why we need a black woman vice president. And my first thought was like, just anyone? Like, just find one. You got a black woman, just vice president now because it's a signal to those older white voters it has nothing to do with what stacey abrams thinks or what kamala harris think or kamala harris thinks or like their specifics it is this is a black woman you said you wanted to vote for someone who would appeal to african-american voters at no time were african-americans consulted about this but it's a signaling mechanism to other white people so i do think that the any African-American woman question is like, <sighs> there is a moral argument here, which is that like, it is generally a bad idea to see non-white politicians as interchangeable parts. And then there is the purely electoral question of like, all else being equal, is there in fact an advantage to putting, you know, like the, it's, it's the same, it's, I mean, this is ultimately an affirmative action argument in a way, but it's the same argument like that. It's the same way the affirmative action argument gets mischaracterized, right? Like if you think of it as, oh, you can pick any like woman of color off the street and she'll be a better vice president than any white man off the street or like do a better job. Like that's not the point. The point is, is there enough of a benefit associated with being a politician who looks like you, which is like not nothing, right? And I think that this can also can often get reduced to to uh, instrumentalism or tokenism in like intra activist debates because among people who are already super motivated by politics, the idea of someone caring a lot about what the face in the White House looks like is like. It leads to politics that people within the Democratic Party coalition and who are active don't really like, right? Like the Democratic Party coalition thinks of itself as a movement of and by and for the people where like it is the electorate making demands and their leaders are fulfilling them. They, It's not a party that is super politically well suited to thinking of itself as a set of personalities. So anything where like, oh, yes, it turns out that a lot of people who aren't you really are motivated by the idea of having someone who looks like them isn't something that appeals. But it, that doesn't mean it's not necessarily true to a certain extent. So there is that. But I think the other thing that is kind of worth paying attention to in the, you know, in this question is that you're not just running any election in a vacuum. You're running it against other candidates who are running different playbooks. And I'm not convinced at all that you can look at Stacey Abrams versus Brian Kemp and map it onto Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, because the other thing that 
The thing that Republicans have been learning for the last four years is the thing that Democrats were learning for the previous eight, which is if you're running a mobilization campaign and your mobilizer is your candidate and that candidate isn't literally on the ballot, your mobilization targets aren't going to turn out. And so the the question I think for me is when faced with Trump being on the ballot again and being able to draw out some of his voters who didn't have a whole lot of interest in voting for non-Trump Republicans, does that change the calculus of how many gettable voters there are and how many voters you would need to capture of those in order to counteract the number of people kind of coming in from outside the likely voter sample in a midterm? Well, and that's also why, you know, I mean, I mean, we have a couple like very clear patterns in, in, in life, which is that like many fewer people vote in midterms than vote in presidential elections, right? Like of all types and like almost nobody votes in primaries. And one thing about primaries is that means that like pure mobilization strategies can be very successful in primaries. Because the baseline turnout is so low. And it also means that there's a block of people who do vote. They just don't normally vote in primaries. And if you can get them to go vote for you in a primary, and I think that's a lot of the Donald Trump story, right? There was this element of people who were mostly voting for Republican candidates, but who were not that emotionally or intellectually invested in Republican Party politics to have been voting in previous primaries. And Donald Trump really spoke to them, right? And it's not that he conjured up new voters out of non-voters, but he conjured up new participants in the primaries out of people who had previously been kind of churlish, a vote for the Republican kind of person, right? And that's like a super real thing. And when Bernie Sanders said he was going to get Like, we just know in surveys that young people like Bernie Sanders a lot. And so when he said his strategy to win the primary was to get young people who like Bernie Sanders a lot and who, like, voted for Hillary Clinton, like, voters, and he was going to get them to participate in the primary process in a way they hadn't before, that was, in my opinion, a completely plausible strategy. And then it didn't work. But, like, sometimes strategies don't work because they're crazy. And like nobody has ever done that. And I think to say, well, we're going to win a general election by overturning the past 50 years of pattern where old people vote more than young people like that's crazy. Um, But to say we're going to get people who vote in general elections interested enough in our candidacy that they're going to vote in the primary, too, like that's totally reasonable that it's hard. Like it's hard to become president. Uh, but but it happens all the time, you know, in one way or, or another. But I think, you know, I think this is implicit in, in what you were saying, Dara, but like so much of that margin is not really about policy. It's about I don't want to say it's not about policy because like Sanders fans clearly felt that Bernie's presidency would deliver some kind of sweeping policy change that Biden wouldn't. And they feel very attached to that. But if you dig down into the analytics of like, why would that be? It hinges a lot on his incorruptible nature, right? Unlike his personal characteristics, rather than a like sober assessment of how Congress works. In just the same way that like Donald Trump, right? He like he owns the libs somehow, right? Like in a non-specific way. And Barack Obama like affirms that the arc of history bends toward justice, separate from from, from his legislating. And, you know, it's what you would expect, right? People who are at the margins of politics, people who vote sometimes but not all the time, or people who change their mind about which party to vote for, are people who are like less invested in the like, boring grind of annual appropriation cycles and they care more about other kinds of stuff that it's you can't like turn on and off with a switch right you can't just say like joe biden but symbolically significant (laughs) correct you know because like he's not right he's shown i think a lot of like political smarts that some other democrats lacked in terms of just like being careful about what positions he takes i mean 
But he's born. The the entire strategy of just not saying anything at all, which people for some reason really were like, why isn't Joe Biden saying more stuff? And I'm like, no, no, no. If you're Joe Biden, just don't say anything. (laughs) Like, you got to Calvin Coolidge this shit for six more months. Like, just ride it out. This is leading me back to reminding me why I was so frustrated with, like, the discourse around the 12 months of the Democratic presidential primary before anyone started voting, because so much of it was people making the attempting to make these calculations who didn't necessarily have any evidence on, you know, like it was a lot of theories of how my preferred candidate can win, not just the primary, but the general election uh, based on, well, I think that my candidate appeals to people at like X, Y and Z. The problem with that fundamentally above and beyond just voters aren't necessarily particularly skilled at this sort of thing that's not, you know, like, it's just not something that's selected for in primary electorates, is that by definition, these are a lot of people who are already highly motivated to turn out to vote in a general election, making predictions about what people who are less motivated to turn out and vote for Democrats in a general election will do. And so you have either a sort of everyone is like me assumption, or the reverse assumption of, well, This candidate doesn't particularly appeal to me, but I can understand how he'd appeal to never Trump Republicans or I can understand how he'd appeal to the white working class. And this is the reason that I keep coming back to 2004 is it seems not implausible to me that a candidate could be more broadly tolerated or liked than the alternative but not be able to successfully turn enough people out to vote. And that, I think, is the real con- the real weakness of the persuasion approach is that it's not it just it doesn't always acknowledge the downside in affirmative demobilization. If you have a candidate who, right. you know, doesn't have the representational appeal to get young voters or non-white voters or whatever out and doesn't necessarily have whatever ineffable, you know, identity politics quality that a politician like Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders does. Um, And not identity politics in the way that people talk about it, which is basically demographics, but identity politics in the like, you know, building a fandom sense. And I'm just, I'm not sure what you do as a party if you're going to run a persuasion playbook in the general election to figure out whether that's actually going to get enough voters out. Yeah, I think um, I would I would love more research and separate conversation on the idea of demotivating, because I think that that's a really important part of this. It's not, you know, as I think that how we talk about motivating the voters that we want to see vote should be coupled with how we think about demotivating other voters. And I think that we've seen that repeated, like we've seen demotivation tactics work because sometimes it seems to happen by the people who think that they can activate a specific base or a base that you should vote but isn't voting. And I think the best example I can think of is Roy Moore's special election in Alabama in 2017, which was um, posited as, for some people who were very supportive of Moore's candidacy before the allegations came out regarding his past, um, as being, you know, he's a true conservative. This is someone who has stood up, quote unquote, for uh, the Constitution before, because, you know, you can't do that if you're not getting heaved off the Alabama Supreme Court a couple of times. But he was incredibly demotivational to swing Republicans and to more moderate Republicans. This is why the story of the Doug Jones-Roy Moore election was really just, you know, tens of thousands of Republicans saying, no, thank you. I don't want any part of this. And so I think that that's something that needs to come up is that while a candidate may not be like getting people to vote for them in droves, there's also how candidates can themselves be demotivational. And I think of this in terms, you know, you saw this with Roy Moore, but you also see it with kind of the, you know, occasionally the candidate that best matches all of your hopes and dreams is also the candidate who will mo- who will demotivate people who do not quite share your hopes and dreams. And so I think that that is why, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about how everybody hates centrists and nobody likes centrist candidates. But it turns out that having a candidate who doesn't make people mad enough either to show up against them or not show up at all 
but it's just sort of like, well, they're there is politically kind of effective. Yeah. So so David Brookman has a has a paper on this, right, on sort of turnout and ideology. And so he looks at uh, sort of discontinuity in, in congressional races. So when you have a close primary outcomes, right? You get 51% or you get 49%, and you get either a more extreme or a more moderate candidate. And what he finds is that when extreme candidates win primaries, turnout for their opponent goes up. So that there's a certain amount of like, holy shit, I got to turn out and stop this crazy guy, right? Whereas a more banal person, people say, eh, whatever. I'll stay home. And I did think that, you know, had Sanders or Warren been the Democratic nominee, they might have had some some upsides on on other dimensions, but that that would have been a real thing, right? That a certain number of center to right of center people who have a bunch of problems with Trump, you know, who are looking at the coronavirus situation or whatever else and being like, I've had enough of this, they would look precisely at those promises of sweeping policy change and those impassioned fans and say, oh, my God, this is really alarming. Whereas they might look at a lot of young lefties being like, Biden, uh, he's not even going to change anything and be like, yep, that's fine. Right. Like not necessarily like I love Joe Biden now, but just be like, I'm I'm good where I am. I got a lot going on in life. Like right. tons of people don't <laughs> vote right in any given election right. and creating a situation in which your side is seen as less threatening is important to that. And I, I think it's important to understand that, like. The media sphere is full of the kind of people who were amped up by Donald Trump, right? Either because we have cosmopolitan uh, political values and find him repulsive or because we are like riding the Trump wave up to the top. But there's another segment of voters for whom Republicans are going to take your Social Security away was a motivating voting topic who were not that into some other things Democrats had to offer, but for whom, like, Democrats are fighting for your Social Security benefits was a really good message. And Trump took that message away from Democrats, right? But it was a mainstay of, like, how were Democrats advertising in rural Michigan and rural Pennsylvania was on these themes that Trump deprived them of. And that probably persuaded some people to come over to his side, but it also just hurt Democrats' sort of go-to mobilization message. Because when you're mobilizing your people, you got to mobilize all kinds of people. You know, So like, yes, you try to mobilize young people, you try to mobilize African-Americans, you try to mobilize Latinos. But like, Democrats also try to mobilize like retired auto workers, you know, and you need a message that works for them. And Trump is trying to take millions of people's health care away, I think was a pretty good message, like a mobilizing message for that. But in 2016, like Hillary didn't have a great mobilization message for certain classes of, of Democrats. It'll just be different with Biden. You know what I mean? Like Trump has given him some new tools, but he lacks the like mobilization impact of electing a, a woman president, you know, which will be, I think, a real issue for him. Um, should we should we do do white paper? Let, let's white paper it. All right. Let's do it. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to Hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— 
but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So this is Asian American Discrimination in Harvard Admissions by Peter, uh, I can barely say this name, Arcidia Kono, uh, Josh Kinsler, and Tyler Ransom. There's a team of people who worked on the uh, Students for Fair Admissions lawsuit, uh, but it's based on just an openly available data set that was sort of coughed up by this litigation in which Harvard was forced to reveal in some detail how they are scoring different applicants. And, you know, what it shows is what, frankly, in my experience, when I was a a journalist on campus, everybody sort of already believed, although they wouldn't admit it, uh, which is that Asian American candidates who are accepted for admission are much stronger academically than non-Asian candidates. And that the reason for that is that a lot of Asian candidates who are academically strong are being booted due to low ratings on the personal index measures of this. It's interesting. Uh, one thing they add here is they're actually able to just throw out the like legacies and athletes and, and things like that and, and just look at the pool of non-legacies, non-athletes, non-development cases. And they show that even in there, Accepted Asian students are much academically stronger, and it's because Asian applicants are getting much lower ratings on personality scores. Then they show the interesting added benefit, which is that when alumni interviewers interview Asian candidates, they don't rate their personality scores low. It's the admissions professionals who are looking at them on paper are deciding that their their personalities are low. Um, then they do some, you know, of the kind of statistical wizardry uh, where they try to show that there are no known, like, observable characteristics that would account for this. So... People who haven't interviewed Asian applicants and haven't met them are deciding based on unobservable characteristics that they have bad personal fit for the school. Uh, And they feel this so strongly despite having not met them uh, that there's a huge... You call it like a, a Jackie Robinson effect, right? The, the the Asian applicants who make it through are just like way stronger in their basic grades and and test scores, um, and it's um, awfully suspicious. I would say um, I wouldn't even say it's suspicious. Like on some level, it, it's like absolutely clear what's going on, which is that Harvard is already twenty percent Asian like under this admission system, and just like they used to have. Uh, systems in place in the Ivy Leagues to prevent it from becoming too Jewish. It's 10 times overrepresented Asians relative to the general population. And so the schools are trying to prevent a situation in which fancy colleges are half Asian in their student bodies uh, because they think that that would not achieve the kind of social role that like, they want Harvard to play in America. I have like 11 separate questions on this. Um, I think first and foremost, perhaps uh, Matt and Dara, as the two people on this podcast who attended Ivy League institutions, I think for many people who might be listening to this, the entire concept of the alumni interview is um, that is a very specific experience. That would be a great podcast. As far as I can tell, the function of this is actually nothing to do with the admissions process and is all about getting the alumni to feel like like they are doing something and are therefore going to give 
give money later on. Uh, but it's an interesting data point for this particular thing, because it does mean we have some evidence of like, are these academically talented Asian applicants, like super awful in some other way. And like the people who are interviewing them don't feel that. It's the the pros shaping the class feel that way. I'm very entertained by the line that like, it must be the case that either uh, Asian Americans are substantially worse on other characteristics Harvard values, or they're being discriminated against, or some combination thereof. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, it's probably not the former. And it's interesting, though, also because what gets me about these alumni interviews and just kind of the basic conceit here uh, with Matt's point noted is that it appears to be focused on when you are interviewing someone. And I think everybody does this. If you've ever been on a job interview, you try to match the cadence and the appearance and the language of the person interviewing you. And then the person interviewing you is like, oh, this person seems great because they are trying to be more similar to you. And so... So much of this is actually has nothing to do with the qualifications to actually attend Harvard University, a delightful place with a delightful taco restaurant that will now serve frozen margaritas. But it has more to do with can you match the cadence and appearance and basic milieu of a person who has already attended this university? And that seems to be like that's I get like the. I think that that's where you get into these the question of like, quote unquote, cultural fit or even like kind of the BS mismatch hypothesis, like this idea of like if you can mimic what it looks like to have already attended Harvard, the people who have already attended Harvard would be like, ah, yes, you can come here. And I find that that's that's concerning. So I have struggled a certain amount with this because uh, I have this extremely Caucasian reaction of defending the legitimacy of any institution that benefited me personally. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I appreciate that. It's Dara. very clear it. to me that uh, the extent to which I, you know, that that I, I made a very self-conscious effort as a high school student to uh, make the powers that be like me by making by like not seeming like a cutthroat competitor which like I'm not fundamentally but I also knew that it was very important to play that aspect up to kind of get at the ineffable character things and to seem like more of a whole person rather than just a gunner because that's the kind of highest articulation of what these sort of interactions are supposed to accomplish right you want to Given the premium that an Ivy League degree can give you in the job market, et cetera, et cetera, the connections you're going to be getting by going there, in theory, you want to make sure that the, those slots are going to people who, A, will like use them for good in some vaguely moralistic way, and B, not make it a miserable experience for other people on campus. So you do want to select to a certain extent for people who are going to collaborate with their peers rather than compete with them, that kind of thing. Whether you can have whether you can figure that out as a in a single conversation, either as a trained admissions counselor or as an alum is like a totally legitimate question, but you can see an argument for some sort of character assessment just as a way for a university to make sure that it's still a pleasant place to be. You know, there are schools that have reputations of being super cutthroat and kind of miserable. And if you like that, you like it. And if you don't, you don't. But right now, the elite college market is so competitive that, and Ivy League schools are trying to be like perfect at everything that it's very important for them to project that really their students like to have fun, that they're good people, that kind of thing. The problem is that this kind of gets into begging the question, right? Because the argument that there is a problem with that the things you can observe about Asian students aren't the same as, you know, like are going to lead toward a more negative assessment relies on the assumption that Asian student that Asian American students are going to come off as cutthroat competitors, which is like more than a little stereotypical and also a thing that if you already assume to be the case, you're going to just be confirmed in that assumption. Because by definition, at this point in time, if you're in the top decile of Harvard applicants, you are probably, in, you know, you're probably an extremely academically competitive person. So I do struggle with this because I think it's impossible to look at the history of college admissions and see character as anything other than a stalking horse for our kind of people. But I think that 
the idea that a university has an interest in doing something other than pure academic selection or pure extracurricular selection or anything else that can be easily gamed is strong. But I mean, to to talk talk turkey here for a minute, right? I mean, the the subtext of this whole litigation, which is about the treatment of Asian applicants, is like actually about African-American and Latino applicants, right? Where there is a a policy in place at most of the well-reputed private universities in America and some of the public universities of trying to prevent the African-American Latino uh, share of the student body from like falling below some like horrifically tiny threshold, right? And it means that race is being considered as a factor in admissions. There has been a lot of Supreme Court litigation about that, and you were allowed to do that, right? Like it, that's a that's a permitted admissions practice. Um, again, a, a number of states have prevented their public universities from doing it, but but private universities can. Uh, but if you reframe that question as not, are universities allowed to give a boost to Black and Latino applicants to create a diverse class, but are universities allowed to discriminate against Asian applicants in order to, I mean, I guess also produce a diverse class, that starts to look a lot dicier, Right. Like if you go into historical arguments about the meaning of the 14th Amendment and like the understanding of the Reconstruction Congress and blah, blah, blah. It's it's very challenging, I think, to find a construal of the history of civil rights thinking in the United States, whereby deliberately discriminating against Asian applicants is an acceptable kind of practice. And so, you know, barring that is I mean, it's it, it is meant to help. Asian applicants to elite colleges, but it's also meant to put the squeeze on the larger admission system. Because if you treated white and Asian applicants on a par, but continued to give a boost to Black and Latino applicants, um, you're going to wind up with very few white students actually being allowed, right, in in, in the mix there. And, you know, so, like, schools aren't going to want to do that. And it raises the question of, like, how can positive discrimination be allowed, but negative discrimination isn't? And, like, what are we doing here? And is designed to push toward, like, a fully race-blind admission system, which, you know, I I mean, I think it's easy to understand why people want that. Um, And then it's also tied up in questions about the like, what are actually the stakes here, right? Like, there's very little, I think, like reason to believe that the marginal student going to Penn rather than Harvard is like generating important changes in the universe. Uh, But it matters a lot symbolically, right? Like, these are very, they're, they're elite institutions and like the most literal sense. Like, they get talked about a lot. A lot of their alumni are in Congress or in the media. And, like, one reason they want to do uh, affirmative action, I think, is that, like, there are a lot of majority-minority congressional districts in the United States. Like, a lot of Black and Latino people are going to be elected to Congress. And Harvard and Yale want to make sure that that's a lot of Harvard and Yale alumni. Like in all the districts, right? In all the states, they do state-based affirmative action. So like the little rural states get a bonus. Oh, yeah. Geographic diversity, and they bury it in here. But geographic diversity is, I think, the greatest remaining advantage for white people. But but that's how you get Ben Sass and Tom Cotton. And, you know, there's like a billion, like, the, the, the genius of the Ivy League is that it's like, the Black members representing poor inner-city districts, a lot of them went to Ivy League schools. A lot of the right-wing cultural populists from heavily rural states, a lot of them went to Ivy League schools, right? It's like, they want to own all the corners. And capping Asian admissions at around 20% helps you achieve that. There just aren't that many Asian people in America, right? Like, they've, they've got plenty in that corner, and they're trying to capture all the other corners. Um, you know, the medal-winning figure skaters, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, Queen Amidala from the Star Wars movies. Like, they, 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 want, they want fingers in every pie, and 
like the, this is what you get. And it's like, it's a little crazy, right? You talk to Europeans about this and they're just like, well, everybody takes a test. And then you go to the school you test into. And like American private universities would never do that. Not, not because they hate meritocracy, but because like success in life is so much more multidimensional than how you do on the SATs. And they want to own all the dimensions. And that requires right. like a lot of monkey business. It's interesting because I feel that so much of this discussion, as Matt said, is actually about African-American Latino students. And it's interesting how Asian-Americans are being used in some respects by some people as a proxy for that so that they can have this conversation without actually talking about white people, despite that, in my view, I think they actually want to talk about white people and the people they do not believe should be attending these universities, people like me. Anywho, this does it does make this paper a little bit at once welcoming and also welcome and also comfortable because like they're essentially using white as the dummy race variable which means that right. most of the time they are comparing directly to white applicants but like sometimes they will throw out and there's also a big character benefit for less qualified african-american or latino Af applicants and it does make it a little bit uncomfortable to read something like this knowing that it's going that those things which are not the thrust of the paper are going to end up being, if not the explicit political talking points, the, you know, the the target of whatever remedial po policies would get instituted and not right. feel that the authors are either obfuscating or being used as useful idiots, which is a very difficult you never want to be in the position of saying, I don't think this white paper should have been written because it's bad that we have this knowledge. It's just something that you kind of wish had been more explicitly addressed. This paper is fascinating, but I, I feel like I had so many additional questions that I almost want research on the research itself. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it should be said. I mean, obviously, these these authors are uh, participants in a, in a lawsuit. Right. Uh, Harvard does have its own... Uh, special Harvard math, uh, which which shows that this is not happening. I mean, I've looked at ah, it. Yes. Obviously, they have a lot of smart professors working at these universities. And if there's one thing you know about smart professors is that they can they can they can come up with anything. Um, I would just say, though, like, I don't have this kind of science uh, at my back. But like, it was obviously true in my experience being on campus that the Asian students uh, were better at school on average than the white students. Like, this is clearly what was happening. What I would not have been able to do is, like, pick out how much of that is because of the geographical diversity, how much of that is because of legacies and development cases, how much of that is because of athletics. Because, like, you know, the athletic stuff is weird, right? They give you bonuses not just for, like, the money sports, like like basketball and football, but for, like, being good at rowing. Which, you know, particular kinds of people have the opportunity to become high-quality fencers at the age of 15 or ski jumpers and, and other kinds of stuff like that. So, you know, I wouldn't have been able to tell you, like, exactly what was going on. But, like, it, it's just very clear, like, this is the, the policy at these schools. And they had the same policy with Jewish applicants at an earlier time in history. And I think it is one of the strangest things that, you know, every school's like official history is like, oh, that was bad. We shouldn't have done that. Uh, but their but their stated reasons for doing it are the same as their stated reasons now for leaning so heavily on these personal characteristics. They would say, well, we didn't want the school to be just full of these grinds, right? That was that was the slang term. But like, it was the same thing. It was the idea that like, if the school was overwhelmingly composed of kids from, you know, a a handful of neighborhoods in New York City uh, where they had a really competitive culture and a lot of people with really good test scores, that that would not be achieving the the lofty goals of the university. I think we may have lost Dara. Well, <laughs> I think we're at about the end of the show. So uh, hopefully Dara, let's, let's do it. Dara is well in, in quarantine. Um, so thanks to everybody uh, for, for listening. Um, you know, we're, we're always uh, glad to hear from you in the Facebook group and elsewhere. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Friday. <laughs>